an infallible word. This is James chapter 5, verse 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any of uh, among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we ask that you would help us to understand your word in this difficult text this morning. We pray that you would help us to submit to the word of God and to delight in it in our inner heart. We pray for the work of the Holy Spirit, that He would, you would grant us understanding and that we would take your word to heart and believe it, that we might not sin against you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in 1983, there was an experiment that was conducted in a large San Francisco hospital. 393 people were prayed for by Christians. The doctors and the patients had no idea, but they were prayed for. And they found that uh, fewer uh, people had complications. They broke apart certain groups, non-prayed for group, prayed for group. Uh, Amongst the prayed for people... Uh, and no one knew each other. Uh, the, the people who were prayed for did better uh, than those uh, who were not prayed for. The ones prayed for had fewer complications, heart attacks, pneumonia. Um, and, of course, it's not something found in the National Enquirer. It was found actually in the American Medical Association, or Journal of the American Medical Association in 1989, which is a noteworthy thing in and of itself. And I'm not so certain what we should read into such a study other than to say that if God is willing at any time, he can heal. Can he not? If God is willing, if it it adheres to the will of God, if it falls within the framework of God's will, which overarches all things, surely the Lord can do all his holy will as he pleases. He may do it. But surely, may we say on the other hand, from our perspectives as human beings who are not fully and always aware of every explicit sense of the will of God as it applies to humanity and our own individual circumstances, from our perspective, if we pray, God hears us, does he not? God hears us. And God answers prayer. It's an extraordinary thing. We can affirm as reformed believers that the mind of the, the, the mind of God is is governed by His godly character, and that the mind of God overarches all things. In this sense, that providence, as the boys and I learned this morning in Sunday school class, God's power, God's providence is His most holy and wise governing of all things. 
And God indeed governs all things from the smallest to the greatest details of life. And James has spoken about the will of God, and he has even said that we must not make plans, concrete, explicit plans, or, 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 or explanations to other persons about future events with certainty and without regard to the will of God. But we have to say, if the Lord is willing. That's what James has told us. What we ought to do is say, well, if the Lord is willing, I will go here or I will do that. In the same way, that same principle, James has written only a chapter ago, still governs what he says here in the passage. If the Lord is willing, there are certain activities that a believer must do if we find ourselves to be very, very ill. There's a lot of misinterpretation of these passages. Uh, Peter Popoff, Benny Hinn, there are many, many people like them who say that they will, they will equate these verses to a formula. And they will say that God has given them an ability to heal. Now, make no mistake, what we've just read is the word of God. And I don't remember anywhere there being a statement in there that specific individuals have, in a continuing sense, the gift of healing. It doesn't call for the name of a of, of, of a, a celebrity pastor to come and lay his or her hands upon you, and then you'll be saved. No, he says, call for the elders of the church. Call for the elders. Well, I remember a greasy-haired, permed, gold-fingered pastor who would scream at the audience that they needed to send him $50, and if they would, then he'll send them a tiny vial of healing oil and a prayer scarf, and if they touched it, they would be healed and made well. There's a tremendous amount of abuse over this passage, even such abuse like this, that someone would go to the hospital with a legitimate illness and be in a hospital bed, and their Pentecostal minister would come to them and say, if you had enough faith, you would not be in this predicament. But if you had enough faith, you would get out of the bed and declare yourself free from the circumstances of your disease and illness. Therefore, believe and you will be healed. That, too, is not what James is saying in this passage. The Roman Catholic Church abuses this passage and says, what what you really need to do is have the sacrament of the sick declared over you. What you do is you call for the priests not elders, you call for the priests and the priests appointed by and blessed by the bishop will come and and proclaim words of extreme unction and or sacrament of the sick, the anointing of the sick over you. Your sins in that moment as the priest raises his hands and proclaims the forgiveness of sins, your sins will be forgiven you and you will be healed. I've watched many, 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 many sacraments of the sick being given to sick people. I have never seen a one healed in the moment. And I was often very tragically, deeply concerned for the fact that now, in this moment, these people were given a false understanding or a false suggestion that all of their sins during the entirety of their lives were forgiven because a priest had stood over them and proclaimed it to be so. And isn't that an example of 
under shepherds saying peace and be healed when there is no healing and when there is no peace. To proclaim over someone who does not even believe, of whom you have not asked any diagnostic questions, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you acknowledged your sin before God? Have you repented of that sin to God? Do you believe in the forgiveness of sins? Do you believe in the resurrection unto everlasting life? Do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was offered as an atoning sacrifice for you? And do you believe that he is coming again, that he lives and reigns at the right hand of God the Father, one day coming in the clouds in great power? Is that your hope? No one asks those questions. You simply walk into the room. I remember recently having to call a Roman Catholic priest in my capacity as a chaplain at a local hospital. And that priest came in. He didn't ask a single question. I said, these people have not been to church. They, they, they count themselves Roman Catholics, but they've never been to church. He says, doesn't matter. They're always part of the church. It sounds very pious, but it also sounds very foolish and anti-biblical. Well, what, are, what can we say about these verses? What, what ought we to say about these verses? Clearly, these verses are ordained as, as, a, as, as an intention to give us reason for hope, to, to call us to godly behavior. James has been talking about what a Christian does, how to live Christianly, if we can say that. He's closing out his epistle. He's got a few choice things. And in the last chapter, chapter and a half, he is, he is giving commands that come rapidly. And they seem detached, but they are all connected. They all concern that one subject of how to live as a Christian in the world. And in the previous section, verses 7 through 12, he mentioned patience, and he mentioned patience seven times. Here, in this passage, in verses 13 through 20, he mentions prayer seven times. I think that's by design. If you hear someone say something over and over and over and over and over again in your, in your conversation, it means that they're, that's very much at the forefront of their thinking. And so prayer... Prayer is, firstly, this morning, as a point in my sermon, prayer is a priority for the Christian. If you want to live as a Christian in the world, if you want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, if your desire is to please God, if your desire is to make it to, through death and into heaven, by the virtue and blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, if that is what you're living for today and you've been justified by grace through faith, and prayer is naturally a priority. It's not something that, that you would forsake and have nothing to do with. Prayer is a priority. James is writing to people who have God-ordained trials, who are suffering, who are afflicted, who are living amongst an unbelieving generation, who are often persecuting them for their, their faith. There are things happening to them that, that, that are causing them deep discouragement and trial. What are we to do but to pray? And that's where, that's where James began his epistle in chapter 1. He said you need to pray. Are any of you suffering? Pray. He's winding up his letter at the end of chapter 5 in the same way, saying seven different times, prayer is your priority as a believer. 
James introduces us to a crowd of people, as it were, a, a, a praying elders, praying friends, a praying prophet. All of these individuals understand our need. And then the sick person on the bed, we understand our need for prayer. His, his first concern in these verses is that we understand the need for the application of prayer within life's two most conflicting circumstances. Joy and happiness and great loss. Deprivation, suffering and hurt, sadness. He says, is any among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Now, now the suffering person, let's make no mistake, James qualifies what, how they're suffering. Now I'm not sure that he's restricting the, the prayer of elders to only those who are really, really, really suffering. But here is a person on their bed, they're on their back. Here is a, someone who is very, very ill. Here is someone who cannot even speak. James doesn't say, extract from them a confession of faith. He doesn't say that. He rather says, pray for them, and the faith of those who are praying for the individual, if it agrees with God's will, may lead to that individual being saved and healed. The prayer offered in faith, that's by the elders by those who are praying for them, will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sin, they will be forgiven him. Here is someone who cannot even speak. They are very, very deeply ill. Maybe they have a terminal cancer. Maybe they have some other diagnosis that's horribly bad. <clears throat> but if it is the Lord's will, those who offer their prayer in faith may see the God of all grace Respond to their prayer in that moment and heal. Do you know that it is the wonder-working, providential, sovereign God who has led those elders to pray for that person? There's never a moment when you and I pray that God hasn't prompted and pressed us and moved us to prayer in the first place. So that we can never say, because I prayed, you've been healed. We can never say, I prayed for you and God responded to my prayer and healed you because of the, the, the veracity and the efficacy and the, 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 the flowery nature of all that I prayed for. No, that's, that's not the reality of what Paul, uh, James is saying. James is saying the elders will pray and, and the prayers offered in faith, if they agree with the will of God, if God is willing to do it, he will heal. And he will make well. Now, he doesn't qualify in this passage here uh, as to the will of God, but he has affirmed that in recent passages and throughout the entire book that it is the will of God that grants what is asked for. Even Jesus in the garden prayed and said, Deliver me from this, deliver this cup from me. However, not my will, but yours. He submitted. He submitted to the will of God the Father. Aren't we to submit to the will of God the Father? Perhaps it may not be God's will that we should be healed. And we have prayed and demonstrated that from this very pulpit. We have prayed for dear ones recently. My dear brother-in-law, our, our dear, dear friend Anne, our dear friend Paula. We're praying for our dear friend Norman 
And in every instance, what have we said? We have not said, Lord God, we demand that you heal this person. We believe, therefore you must. You're under a holy compulsion to do what we have commanded. No, God is not subject to our sovereign assumptions. But we humbly say, Lord, if you are willing, will you heal? And if, if Lord, you, your will has some other good than this, oh, Lord God, we ask that your will would be done. And we submit to our Savior. That's what a Christian does. But we do it in the midst of prayer. Prayer is a priority. Doesn't it seem in this passage that James's great concern for all of us is not that we get caught up in the circumstances of the mechanism so much as that we make a priority, a deep and lifelong commitment to prayer. That's James's focus, is prayer. James's focus is prayer. It's an unheard of thing to see a Christian who does not pray. If you would stand here and before the church and say, yes, I'm a Christian, I believe these things, but no, I really don't see any use for the exercise of prayer. We would question, rightly so, whether or not you have an intimacy with God founded upon the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. We would question whether or not you know God. You've learned certain things about him, but do you know God? Are you in a living relationship with him? It's like saying, I'm married, but I never speak to my spouse. In fact, we don't even sleep in the same home. We never get together. We don't go out to eat. And we would say, well, you may call it whatever you wish, but that's not marriage. They're not married. You have an arrangement, but in the eyes of God, you're not married. Fulfill your obligation to be married. As a Christian, to say that we believe certain things, but we don't pray is foolish. Prayer is a means of grace. Prayer is a means for discovering the will of God. Prayer is a means for humbling the believer in the secret place of secret fellowship with the living God. Prayer is the delight of the Christian soul because we know that through Christ we are welcomed into the presence of God and Almighty God who formed Pleiades and, and put Orion with his belt in the sky hears intimately your prayer. There's a country music song, Thank God for Unanswered Prayer. I understand what, what, what the singer is saying. I'm not saying that what he's saying is foolish. But there's no such thing as an unanswered prayer. God hears it all. He may not give you what he, you want, but that doesn't mean he hasn't answered you. <clears throat> we need to understand the necessity of prayer within life's two most contrasting circumstances. In the midst of grave suffering, we say, I'm so racked with suffering that I can't possibly pray. I need you to pray for me. That's when we need to pray. They can sometimes give, uh, we might respond and say, I, I, I refuse to pray to a God who would strike me so harshly and cause me to experience such suffering. We might surely rebel against God and be guilty of bitterness and accuse him of abandonment. 
Equally so, in times of ease, we might respond or not respond at all. We simply go about our days and never really think of our need for prayer because we are so complacent, lazy, and we make an assumption about our ability to cope with all the vagaries of life that God has forgotten. You see, that's why James is saying, even when it's good, pray. You have cause for rejoicing, praise. Praise God. What is praise? It's it's the language of prayer. It's not just prayer is not just making requests made known to God, but it is also praising God with audible praise. It is also making supplication, asking for forgiveness, giving thanks. Prayers, all those things. And we ought to be ever eager to to pray. James' argument is, is, is that none of us should be moved, whether suffering or caught up in all the joys of life, that we should still have an anchor of our soul in prayer to God. And we should continue to pray consistently. My dear friend, if you have abandoned prayer as somehow a needless exercise, or you're so very busy, you're so caught up in so many different things in your life, or sin has gotten between you and God, and it's a very easy thing for us to do, isn't it? We sin some grievous sin. We ask the Lord to forgive us, but then we are too ashamed to approach him. <clears throat> we feel surely the Lord is not going to hear us until, until I've made a better approach to my life. And I've got to get a good week under my belt, maybe a good two weeks, maybe a good year, make some renovations in my life. Then God will hear me. Hear me. Isn't that an assumption, a false assumption about God? That he only hears our prayers when we do well? Didn't James recently say he gives wisdom generously and without reproach? So isn't it true that when we pray, God gives generously and without reproach? Doesn't God wisely counsel our soul in the midst of prayer? Isn't God the one who has granted to us his excellent son to remove the penalty and the impediment of sin? Are we not welcomed into the presence of God? Is there any moment when God does not readily call us, come to prayer, come to prayer. I invite you into my presence through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Come to me in prayer. Lay your burdens upon me, Jesus said. There's never a moment, dear friend, never, never a moment when we are not invited immediately to pray. Calvin said it. There's no time in which God does not invite us to himself. No time. We have a God for every season of life. We have a God even for the seasons when we are caught up in our circumstances and we're so, we forget God because we've just had such a good time at Christmas. We forget God because we've just had so much fun with our friends. We forget God because we're so having such a good time in our occupation and, and getting so much money in 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 refer, in uh in compensation that we really don't need to pray, it's a foolish perspective. You need the Lord both in wealth and in poverty. We need the Lord both in suffering and in joy. 
We need the Lord every moment of every day. I need you every hour. Do we not sing? To pray to him is to acknowledge that his sovereign power is sufficient to meet our needs. We need to praise the Lord to acknowledge his sovereign power in appointing our circumstances. God is our sufficiency. God is our help in time of need. He is also our gladness and our joys. Because all the things that bring us joy in this life, should we not say to our God, surely you have done it. Surely what has blessed me has come from you. The ease in which I find myself, this season of blessing, it's from you, O God. You are the lifter of my head. And in our suffering, O Lord, how much I need you. Oh, how I need you to help me. You are my help. You are my stay. You are my strong tower. You are my defense. You are my great physician. It is your will that has placed me here, and it is your will that may take me up. Oh, Lord God, if you are willing, come and help me in my suffering. At every stage of the Christian's life, we are to pray. In essence, we are to make holy every circumstance of life. We are to make holy We are to sanctify every circumstance of life. If we're enduring under some horrible circumstance, we are to see that God is working in our lives one way or the other. And even though we may be mystified by his providence, God is at work and he will see us through. Our lives should be so angled toward God that whatever strikes us in this life, in whatever circumstances we may find ourselves, we should be deflected at once upward into the presence of God and say, Lord, oh, how I need you in this moment. Oh, Lord, I must give you praise. Oh, Lord, I I cannot keep silent. You are a merciful and gracious God who has blessed me in every way. This is what prayer and praise boil down to. Whether in prayer or praise, our prayer must always be, not my will, but thine. Even in prayer, while under some sense of suffering, prayer cannot, uh, prayer may not remove the, the affliction, but it most certainly can transform the affliction. It can certainly give us God, the Holy Spirit, working through and in prayer, can certainly give us a very different perspective on our circumstances and our suffering and help us to see that our suffering has eternal significance. Surely the Lord can do all his holy will. Well, my concern this morning is with what James is trying to tell us. We don't need to be consecrated by a bishop, and we don't need the consecrated hands of a wicked man to come and be laid upon us and somehow through the the intercession of that wicked person to receive the extreme unction or the sacrament and blessing of God. The Council of Trent declared an anathema on anyone who denies that extreme unction is properly a sacrament instituted by Christ. I'm sorry, but as I read scripture, I don't see any evidence of that. Go ahead and make me anathema. It is what it is. Christ instituted 
two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. He received both of them. He didn't receive any other. They go on to say, let them be anathema and anyone who denies that extreme unction is properly a sacrament instituted by Christ, promulgated by the blessed Apostle James. (laughs) I don't read that here. Do you? The truth is that we are to be men and women who who do nothing beyond the, the limitations of the word of God. We believe what the word says and nothing more. They also say, in continuing in the Council of Trent, that sacred unction confers grace and remits sin. And let them be anathema who think that the ceremony is repugnant to the sentiment of the blessed Apostle James, or that the elders to whom James refers are not priests who have been ordained by a bishop. You see the manipulation of the text? James uses a very specific word for elders, and he says... Is anyone sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith, not the oil itself, not the blessing of the Pope, not the unction of sinful men, not any other thing or the floweriness of their prayers. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. It really comes down ultimately to the work of God, the prayer of faith. It's not so much the prayer as it is faith in the individual and the the individual to whom prayer is offered. Prayer is offered to the ever-living God who heals, who makes well, who lifts up our heads, who sustains, and who is our strength with all the nonsense that you heard me share from the Roman Catholic Church is nothing more than nonsense. The truth of the matter is elders, they have a purpose. The gifts of an elder are to be used for no other purpose than to minister to the people of God. And yet we live in an age in which we see elders, pastors and elders, teaching elders and ruling elders, enriching themselves at the expense of people. Enriching themselves at the expense of the sheep of God. I gave an, a, 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 I gave a, a, a shared a brief story about a pastor in California this last week, uh, this this last week as I preached, who had encouraged his whole church to get on board with a new, newly created um, um, digital currency that he himself had created. It was nothing more than a Ponzi scheme. It was nonsense. I'm not sure that digital currency or any other currency under the sun is anything less than a Ponzi scheme either. The only reason why your dollar is worth anything is because the person next to you values that dollar too. Well, James, James is telling us that those who enrich themselves that the hands of their people are wicked, and that the purpose of elders is, amongst other things, at the very least, to come and pray for the sick, to pray over them, to believe, to have faith, to apply a medicinal. Oil in that day was applied as medicinal application. Somehow we 
The Catholic Church has taken oil and it's got to be pure olive oil, virgin olive oil. It's got to be blessed and waved over by the Pope or a bishop of some kind locally. I know that many others will take oil and put it on the head of an individual and pray for them. But, you know, James, it seems to me, does not make a priority out of the, the oil so much as he does prayer and faith. And at no other point in James's epistle does he say that the person who, 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 who is asking God for mercy or wisdom or any other thing is to apply oil to their head. Jesus healed many a person and never applied oil, did he? At one point he put, he put saliva uh, mixed mud on the eyes of an individual. <clears throat> Maybe we should do that. We should spit on each other's eyes when we pray for each other. I'm being facetious, I know, but but the truth is that we make a gimmick out of everything, don't we? And we love when somebody will say, look, I'm going to apply this to your situation, uh, some oil blessed by such and such, or some oil from the very olive, uh, the garden of, of, of uh, or the, the garden of Gethsemane. There amongst the olives themselves in which Jesus walked, the oil is applied to your head, surely you will be healed. I'm not sure God is so constrained by olive oil or any other such thing or the blessing and the waving of hands of any person. But people are simply to pray and to apply a medicinal. In James's day, oil was, it did have healing properties. So the elders are supposed to come with a, a handful of, of bear or aspirin or some Advil or whatever else it takes and offer at least some means of relief in the immediacy of sickness and or to come with in, into the hospital where chemotherapy is being given to the individual and to pray with faith over them. And the Lord will heal if it is in agreement with his will. Many healings are recorded for us in the Gospels and the book of Acts, but most of them do not really have an application of oil. God is not limited by oil. God can hear prayer and move and work according to his own will. <clears throat> So I would say to you, if, if you enjoy the application of oil, you, you like therapeutic oils, as I do, and my wife does, uh, she, uh, I'll tell you a funny story, Christine, often when I have a headache and I do have migraines, she'll come to me and say, would you like some peppermint oil? <laughs> works, it really works. And I, I, I one time said, sure, go right ahead. She anointed my head, and she didn't really anoint, but she, she put some oil on my, on my, on my temples and every time I turned my head, either to the right or the left, I'd get peppermint oil in my eyes. And so I had tears streaming down my face, which made me kind of forget the, the, the headache just a little bit. But I'm not sure it really relieved me in any sense. However, she takes that oil and she loves it. And she says it does good things for her. Little subtle differences and helps. I think that's wonderful. She takes other things on occasion, too. I encourage that. But don't let that take the place of prayer. Sometimes afflictions and diseases, illnesses occur because of sin, don't they? Sometimes we've entered into sin in some way and, and we have borne in our bodies the affliction that naturally comes from it. Think of sexual sins. Think of an accident where we have we have been drinking and we've gone out and driven our car and now for the rest of our lives we must bear in our body 
the, the, the scars of the decisions that we have made as we wrapped our car around a telephone pole. Sometimes sin leads to illness. Sometimes it does. God, if he is merciful, God who is merciful, if he is willing, may deliver you from that if you confess your sin to the Lord. God may, if it is his will, if he is pleased to do it, may heal you. Ultimately, all affliction and illness and suffering in this life is due to the sin of Adam and our participation in that sin. Clearly, James wants to confront us with the reality that every illness is designed by God as an opportunity for us to think about our lives and to take an assessment of ourselves and to be humble before God, to confess our sins to him. And if he is willing, according to his grace, he will forgive us. Whatever state we are in, even in illness, we are in need of prayer. <clears throat> we must believe that God can heal us, that we will, that he will heal us. We must humble ourselves to accept his holy will, whatever it may be. In the prayer of faith, our faith is not that the promises will be fulfilled just like that. It's the faith which rests trustingly in the will of a sovereign, faithful, loving God. Neither the sick person nor any elders is there to insist that his or her will be done, but rather to place that sick person within the total and eternal security of the unchangeable and unchangeably gracious will of God. And that's as far as we'll go this week. But let me say this in closing. Are you sick? Are you ill? Do you struggle in your body or your mind? Whether that's anxiety or fear. Have you struggled with mental illness? Have you struggled with physical illness? Have you received a diagnosis that's humbling and difficult to comprehend? Your faithful Father in heaven hears your prayers, and it is not contrary to his will for you to pray and ask for healing. But at the same time, when you pray and ask for healing, and for years and length of days, remember to always say, Lord, not my will, but yours. Place yourselves in the hands of your faithful creator. And whether you die or whether you live, he will see you through. He is faithful and he is gracious. And if you are gravely ill and you are no longer able to pray for yourself, call and ask the elders of the church to come and pray over you. Perhaps the Lord is willing to hear those prayers offered in faith and to heal you. Your elders always stand ready to come and pray with you any day, time of day or night. I promise you, we'll come and pray with you and we'll pray in faith. And it's not because we're good people or because we have good hands or because of what we might apply on our hands or we're wearing, we're wearing just the right aftershave or perfume or anything else, but because God is a wonder working God who hears prayer. And God may, in fact, prompt us to pray and may, in fact, be willing to heal you. So call for the elders to come and pray for you. But, dear friends, don't neglect to hear James's counsel and advice. When you're rejoicing, you're in need of prayer. Because you're in danger of forgetting the Lord and being coming so enamored with blessing that you forget 
the obligation of praise and thanksgiving. And when you're suffering, sometimes that's the only thing that we can see, isn't it? We simply can't think of anything else. But it's precisely there that we need to say, Lord, I need you. I need you every hour. I need your help and grace to stand in the midst of this great trial and suffering I'm enduring. I need you to stay my mind upon you. I need you to be merciful to me. And Lord, if you're willing, will you heal me? You are my strength. You are my hope. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we give thanks to you for the gift and the privilege, the delight, the joy, the soul's respite of prayer. We ask that you would help us to be faithful in prayer. We ask that you would not falsely let us calculate that because somehow we have not heard something or an audible voice or we haven't been healed in the moment, that surely you haven't heard us. Lord, you hear everything we say. We are constantly under your microscope. Help us, therefore, to, with great trust, give ourselves to you, to entrust the things that afflict our soul to you, and to look unto you with faith, trusting and believing, knowing that ultimately you will heal us of every disease and of every trial, because we will enter into the throne room of God and into the joy of the ever-living Christ, and we will be healed. And we will walk in a fullness and a resplendent joy unlike anything we have ever known. And so therefore help us to remember that the Lord is soon coming. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn with me in your hymnal to 522? We'll stand together and sing.